We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth. Philip DeCourcy explains how to respond to Jesus. We're to confess him in words, works, and water. We're to confess him with our mouth, Romans 10. We're to confess him in our works, Matthew 5, where we're told men will see our good works and they will glorify our Father in heaven. And water, that's the ordinance of baptism. Confess with your words. Confess with your works. Confess in the water of baptism. He's the Christ. Is Jesus? That's the question each of us has to answer in this life. Welcome to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, and when it comes to who Jesus is, we can't rely on the opinions of skeptics or the popular culture. We need to study what Jesus said about himself and look at the evidence for his life, death, and resurrection. Today, we're continuing our series titled The Essential Jesus in the Action Packed Gospel of Mark. Here's Philip. We're going to look at the subject, life's most important question, because this is a passage in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, that's focused on the question, who is Jesus? I mean, that's a question we've all got to ask ourselves. Who is Jesus? Was he a mere man? And kind of his legend has grown with the passing of time, and he's become this larger-than-life figure? Was he a deluded religious figure? that pushed the buttons of the religious establishment to the point where he basically invited his own crucifixion? Was he the Son of God? That's what the Bible argues. And so far, Mark has kind of outlined who he is. He has shown us that he is indeed the Messiah. We have identified him by his words and by his miracles. We have seen him cast out evil spirits. We have seen Jesus heal the sick miraculously. We have seen his claim to be able to forgive sins, which is an authority and an ability that belongs to God alone. But when we move beyond this point, we're going to focus more on his impending death, his crucifixion. We're coming to the heart of the gospel which is that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and on the third day He rose again, because that's what He came to do. So let's come and look at these verses. If you're taking notes, the first thing I want us to see is what I'm calling the confusion. There's a lot of confusion regarding the Lord Jesus, His identity, who He was. Look at verse 27. Now Jesus and His disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road He asked His disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And look, we get all kinds of opinions. There's all kinds of confusion and controversy regarding the identity of the Lord Jesus. He's John the Baptist. He's Elijah. He's one of the prophets. 
And so Jesus is talking. He says, hey, guys, what's the scoop? What's the word on the street regarding my identity? What's the prevailing opinion? Who do men say that I am? They go, hey, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, why would they say that? Because back in Mark 6, with a conscience awakened by the guilt of what he had done to John the Baptist, Herod hears of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And back in Mark 6, we read that Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. And that kind of got out into the water, and people are saying, Herod's saying that he's John the Baptist. That was an opinion. Some say you're their prophet Elijah. If you go to Malachi 4 and verse 5, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which will usher in the kingdom, it says the prophet Elijah will come. And given the messianic fervor that's taking hold, given the fact that Jesus didn't allow the crowd to take him and make him king, they've got questions as well as to whether he's the Messiah. So they've concluded, hey, maybe he's Elijah, preparing the way of the Lord, preparing for the kingdom and for the king. Well, again, they're wrong because that was John the Baptist. He was a kind of Elijah figure. But some have concluded, no, he's Elijah. And then others go, no, he's, he's one of the prophets. Look, despite the many sermons and the many signs, aren't we surprised to some degree here to find that confusion reigns? That there's a diversity of opinion on the Lord Jesus Christ? Some are willing to say, hey, he's a man of God. He's a prophet. Yes, but Messiah, no. We wouldn't go that far. Because you see, by this stage, the image that the Jewish mind has of the Messiah is a conquering hero. The kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament, the Davidic king who would come and establish his throne forever, and Israel would be elevated among the nations. And the Messiah is this warrior, this hero, who's going to come and help take the Roman boot off the neck of the Jewish people. And frankly, Jesus isn't fitting the bill. What's your opinion? Does your opinion line up with Jesus' own revelation of himself? I am the Christ. I've come to suffer, and I've come to conquer death, because this is the gospel. Jesus died according to the Scriptures for our sin, and he rose again according to the Scriptures. Or is he a teacher to you, a man to you, a prophet to you, a mystic? See, these are the distortions that prevail. Because from the time of Jesus till now, men have been creating him in their own image. They do it to fit their culture. They do it to justify their lifestyles. They do it to give reason to their religious experiences. And I'll tell you why they do it. They do it to ignore the God-sized portrayal of Jesus in the Gospels. The virgin-born, sinless Son of God who died for our sins and whom God has exalted and every knee should bow and every tongue confess that He's Lord. The Jesus who is authoritative. The Jesus who will take every inch of your life and every key to every room in your life and will demand obedience and demand worship. The Jesus who says there's a broad road and if you're on it, you're going to hell. There's a narrow road. If you're on it, you're going to heaven. It's the Jesus who said, you're either for me or against me. It's not the meek and mild Jesus. It's the mean and wild Jesus you'll find in the Gospels, for want of a better word. In fact, that's an idea I stole from Mark Galley, Christian author, who says, the problem is that we have a Jesus light image, hearing only what we want to hear, having become deaf to the richer parts of the symphony of love. Galley says we have averted our gaze from the uncontrollable Christ of the Gospels in favor of a Sunday school flannel graph depicting a cartoonish lamb-cuddling softy. We hear the melody, 
played by the strings but ignore the brass and the wind and especially the percussion sections. We don't notice the strong harmonies, the counterpoint, and the dissident chords. You see what he's saying? He's taking the image of music, the image of an orchestra, and the different parts that each of those sections of an orchestra play. And man typically tunes in to that part of the symphony of God's love that suits him. Jesus, gracious, loving, patient, mild. But they don't listen to the thunder of the wind section and the percussion section, where Jesus is God in human flesh. He gets to decide your future. You're either for him or you're against him. He's virgin-born. He's sinless. He claimed to be God. You don't get to make up your mind about him. You don't get to do what Marcus Mumford did in an interview with Rolling Stone. I don't know about you, but I like the Mumford and Sons. They're a British group, and their music is very entertaining and, and mostly edifying. In fact, there are Christian themes in it of sin and death and redemption because Marcus Mumford was the leading singer in the group, came from a Christian home. His father and mother are leaders in the vineyard movement in the UK and in Ireland. And in an interview with the Rolling Stone magazine, he was asked that he still consider himself a Christian, and he replied, I don't really like that word. It comes with so much baggage. So no, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I think the word just conjures up all these religious images that I don't really like. I have my personal views about the person of Jesus and who he was. Really? You don't get to make up the Jesus you like. You don't get to listen only to one part of the symphony. Of course, there's love and there's grace and there's mercy, but there's holiness. There's unique claims. There's exclusive claims. There's the road that's broad that's apart from him. And if you're on it, you're lost. There's a road that's narrow. And when you're with him, you'll find life. That's the confusion that reigns. It did then and it does now. My friend, I hope God gives you clarity and helps you to see who Jesus is. Which moves us to the confession. The confession, Jesus focused now moves from the crowd and popular opinion to something far more important, the disciples' opinion. And that is important because at some point, he's going to leave them to carry on the mission in his name. He needs to know what kind of Jesus they're going to preach. So he turns and he says to them, although Peter will give the answer, which I think is just an indication. Peter is a spokesman for the disciples. You'll find him take on that role throughout the Gospels. So let's go to the text here. Verse 29, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? This is in the emphatic, in the Greek grammar. It's just a way of, you know, reminding us that this is an important issue, an essential element. This is something Jesus is pressing. Guys, you, what do you say? Who do you say I am? This is important. They're going to be the gospelers. They're going to be the evangelists. In fact, it's Peter and his remembrances and reminiscences will help Mark write this gospel. And Peter speaks up, and we've got one of the great confessions of the Bible. Now, Mark's got a shortened version of it. Mark simply says, and Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. If you go to Matthew 16, Matthew gives us a longer version where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him, said, blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this, but my Father in heaven. Thank you, Peter, for stepping into the light of the gospel and the the work of the Spirit, and God has revealed this to you. 
So Peter gives us a great and a grand confession of the Lord Jesus. The word Christ here in Mark's gospel is important. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew term Messiah. At its heart, it carries the idea of the anointed one. If you go back into the Old Testament, kings or priests who were called by God and commissioned by God were anointed often, and with that anointing came an empowerment of God's Spirit. But amidst all those anointed ones, there was an anointed one who was promised a king above all the kings, someone after the line of David, someone according to 2 Samuel 7, who would establish the throne of David forever. A Davidic king. And Peter is acknowledging that Jesus is that person, that Jesus occupies that role. This is a converging moment in Peter's life. You know, we've kind of beat these guys around the head for a week or two, kind of accusing them how spiritually stupid they are, how dense they are. But for whatever, a perfect storm of words, miracles, the work of the Spirit, some further reflection on his part, whatever that is, there's a convergence, and all of a sudden, Peter gets it. This is one of the turning points in the book. This is a hinge passage. You're the Christ. We get it. You're the Christ. We've heard the words. We've seen the miracles. We believe the claim. You're the promised one. You're the seed of the woman in Genesis. You're the prophet greater than Moses in Deuteronomy. You're the promised Davidic king, 2 Samuel. You're the redeemer of the book of Job. You're the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings, according to the prophet Malachi. You're the one. You're the promised one. You're the anointed one. You're the son of the living God. You're not just the son of man. You're the son of God. It's wonderful, isn't it, this confession? You love the clarity of it. You love the unequivocal nature of it. Peter pronounces it. Hey, there's all kinds of opinions out there. But here's the true opinion. The only right response to the question, who am I? You are the Christ. Let me say this, by the way. I took this phrase from one of the writers, commentary by Edwards. He says this, faith is a judgment about Jesus. I like that statement. Saving faith is a judgment about Jesus. You won't be saved. You won't see God's heaven. You won't get past a thrice holy God unless you have made the right judgment about his Son. Because remember, when Jesus was on earth, the heavens opened and the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son. He pleases me. Hear him. God's asking us to make a judgment about Jesus. God is asking us to submit to Jesus' word. And I want to tell you, biblical faith is a judgment on Jesus. Faith is an amorphous in the Bible. Faith is our confidence. It is the resting of our hope upon a correct understanding of who Jesus was. There came a point in my life where I made a judgment about Jesus. I'd heard about him my whole life, and I'd heard different versions about him out in my community and through my friends. But I came to this definite opinion. The Bible's right. Peter's right. He's the Christ. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In him, God was reconciling the world to himself. He's the virgin-born, sinless son of God who died in the atoning death, was buried, rose. He's in heaven, and God has exalted him. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And I'm not going to wait till it's too late. And so on the 20th of January, 1978, I bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. Because that's what saving faith is. It's a judgment about Jesus and his claims. Quickly, and I want to make an application here 
Peter's confession is striking. One, it's in public. Two, it's in the face of opposing opinions. And three, it's in a hostile environment. Let me just mark that out. It's in public. They're on a road. They're moving 25 miles north from Bethsaida to the villages or towns of Caesarea Philippi. This didn't happen behind closed doors. Certainly the other disciples heard his confession. And I would assume if they're on a public road, typically the text doesn't tell us, there'd be others hanging around the edges. They'd be the disciples of the disciples. And they'd be onlookers and spectators. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, he did it in public. Now, do not misunderstand verse 30. He strictly warned them that they should not tell anybody. That's a larger issue. We're back to that theme that when the time is right, the disciples will preach this gospel further than they've ever done before to more people than they've ever done before. But Jesus is hesitant because there's this political kingdom idea. And remember, they tried to take him once in John 6 and make him king for all the wrong reasons. And so there's a hesitancy here on the part of Jesus to make this known any further. But make no mistake about it, it's in public. And number two, it's in the face of opposing opinions. There are other views about Jesus. Peter's cutting across the grain of popular opinion. Peter is taking a definite stance on who Jesus is. You are the Christ. You're not one among many. You're one above them all. And he did it in hostile territory. We're in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. We're on the outskirts. We're moving into that region. And I won't bore you with all the details, but it is helpful to paint in the background. This is the region that's governed by the Tetrarch, Herod Philip II. He's a Jew by birth, but he's a Gentile by practice. He's a hybrid. He's a mongrel, spiritually speaking. In fact, he developed this city in honor of Caesar Augustus. He pays homage and worship to the Roman Caesars who claim to be gods and lords. In fact, in the city, you'll find a sanctuary to Pan, who was a half-man, half-goat god that the people worshipped to protect their flocks and the surrounding villages. This was a Gentile region. In fact, Philip Moore has an interesting little phrase in his commentary in Mark. He said, this area was as Gentile as a pork pie. Okay? And Peter confesses that Christ is among them. He does it publicly in the face of opposing opinions, and he does it in hostile territory. Does that not kind of ring a bell with you? You go, man, I need to think that through because that sounds very like what I'm called to do where I am. Because, see, the Bible calls us to confess the Lord Jesus. In fact, you're to believe in your heart and you're to confess with your mouth that he's Lord. In fact, scroll down to verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Deny him now, he'll deny you then. Our love and our experience of God is personal. Don't get me wrong, it's very personal. But there's a difference between something being personal and something being private. My love for my wife is very personal, but it's also very public. I don't hide that love. I don't deny that love. And that's what it is with Christ. Our love for him is very personal, but it can never be private. We're not to be ashamed of him. You know, at our baptisms here at Kindred, I often talk about we're to confess him in words, works, and water. We're to confess him with our mouth, Romans 10. We're to confess him in our works, Matthew 5, where we're told 
men will see our good works, that is, our lives reflecting the goodness and grace of God, and they will glorify our Father in heaven. Our lives can speak. So we must speak with words, and we must back it up with a transformed life. Words, works, and water. That's the ordinance of baptism. Because, you know, I'm suspicious of anybody that doesn't want to go public about their faith. And baptism assures to some degree to us as a leadership, as we've tested their testimony and now they're going public, you know what? They're not hiding this. Hopefully they're the real deal and we've got every evidence that they are. And you know what? Baptism's a good way to test that. And that's why it was one of the marks of discipleship in the Bible. Go to the book of Acts and everybody that confessed the Lord Jesus with their mouth confessed it in water, in baptism. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, you're disobedient, to be frank about it, and you're totally out of the will of God. And I don't know how you can come to the Lord's table and take one ordinance while you're denying obedience to the other. But I'll hammer you on that on another day. Okay? Just think about it. So I hope you're confessing him, and you need to confess him, because when you agree with me that we're living in a culture that's increasingly trying to censor the gospel— They go apoplectic when we talk about traditional biblical marriage. When we oppose homosexuality, we get called homophobic. And they try to shut people down. That's the culture you're in. It's aggressive, secular humanism. Now, you're okay if you'll worship in your churches, but don't bring it to school. Don't talk about it at work. And don't elect anybody to come and bring it to the halls of power. That's America, folks. It's a culture that's going to ask you to deny them. Or if you're going to confess them, you know what? Do it behind closed doors in your sanctuaries. In fact, I think it is troubling that others in the liberal administration are talking about freedom of worship, not freedom of religion. And I think that's purposeful. Because they're saying, you know what? We're going to protect your right to worship. Now do it over there, behind your walls, and behind your doors. But don't bring it to school. Don't bring it into the political realm. Don't talk about it on the university campus. We're going to censor you. You're not going to have freedom of religion in the public square. You're going to have freedom of worship in private. We've got to stand up, call that out for what it is. It's unconstitutional. We're not going to stand for it. And regardless of what the Constitution says or what the culture does, on top of that, we're just going to do it because Jesus calls us to do it. You're not going to shut us up, and you're not going to shove us off to the side. So just take a page out of Peter's book, be inspired by him, be instructed by him. You know what? He did it in public. He did it in the face of opposing views, and he did it in a hostile culture. Confess with your words. Confess with your works. Confess in the water of baptism your love for Jesus Christ and your definite conviction. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's Philip DeCourcy encouraging us to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. If you want to listen again or catch up on any message in the Essential Jesus series, go to ktt.org. When you come to Christ, that's just the beginning of a journey to know and love God deeper every day. We regularly hear from listeners who've made know the truth a part of their daily discipleship, accepting the challenge to live out God's Word with greater devotion. We trust you're growing and learning as you come to know the truth with us. And it's listeners like you who make this program possible as you invest your resources to bring Know the Truth to people in your community and across the country. When you give, we'll send you a special study guide from Philip called Handling the Pressure. It's a booklet that offers you a model for managing everyday stress and anxiety. 
Philip presents Jesus' pattern for handling life's pressures with a three-point plan. Get away, pray, and relay. Jesus set aside time to refresh and recharge to connect with God and His purposes. And Jesus also shows us how to spread the work around so we're not running on empty. We'll send you Handling the Pressure, the booklet today, when you make a generous donation to Know the Truth. Call us at 888-644-8811. Or request the booklet when you give online at ktt.org. Or if you prefer, send your check by mail to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And when you reach out, consider making your gift a recurring monthly donation. Your monthly support is needed more than ever as we keep pace with the cost of producing and delivering this program to you. Become a Truth Ambassador today when you visit ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd, signing off for Philip DeCourcy, but be sure to come back tomorrow for another message from the Gospel of Mark. That's Thursday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hey folks, Rich Lee here. Well, my pillow has now made it easier than ever to own a my pillow. Not only are they still offering a 10-year warranty, not only is it guaranteed not to go flat, made in the USA, washable, dryable, and the official pillow of the National Sleep Foundation, but now here's their best offer yet. For a limited time, go to mypillow.com or call 800-517-3636 and use promo code WAVA to take advantage of Mike Lindell's four-pack special. You'll get 40% off two my pillow premium pillows and two go anywhere pillows. Now you can take your my pillow with you when you travel and even give one to a friend there is no excuse to delay any longer purchase the best pillow i have ever owned call 800-517-3636 do that today and get the four-pack special that's 40 percent off two my pillow premium pillows and two go anywhere pillows my pillow will get you into that deep sleep faster and you'll stay there longer call 800-517-3636 notice the difference a good night's sleep can make at home and now even when you travel call 800-517-3636 or mypillow.com promo code wava Wish there was a place